Welcome to episode 31 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the Beretta Podcast. This is the New Zealand podcast that covers issues in philosophy, theology, politics, social issues, and so on and so forth. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. You may have noticed the podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus for a while now. At the blog, beretta-online.com, I've discussed this a little bit, and if you follow the blog, you'll know that because of some changes here, it has now become possible to get back into making new episodes on a regular basis, which is great. You can expect episodes to be about monthly-ish from now on. Give me a bit of leeway. I don't promise perfection, but it'll, it'll be roughly every month. So where are we in the podcast? Well, we're now at part three of a series that I started back in episode 26, which was months ago now. That series is called In Search of the Soul. It's a series on the subject of mind, souls, bodies, the broad area called philosophy of mind. Now, so far in that series, I've introduced a Cartesian or Platonic dualism, probably the majority of you held among Christians. Uh, I've evaluated and I've rejected some of the reasons that have been offered for holding that view. Then, in episode 27, I moved closer to physicalism by introducing what's called emergent dualism, or just emergentism. I took a look also at the argument for dualism from free will. I indicated that the argument about free will tends to be a little bit too simplistic. In the case of emergent dualism, it wasn't even clear that it had any resources to draw on to make free will possible, that physicalism doesn't also have access to. Up to now, I've said that the argument from free will or mental causation, the argument from thought, the argument from qualia, and the argument from the unity of consciousness, these all fail to give us good reasons to embrace dualism. So in this episode, episode 31, part three in the series, I was going to look at another argument for dualism, namely the argument from the afterlife. But I've actually decided to put that off until part four in the series because it's a really it's really an argument against physicalism and because it responds to physicalism, I thought that it would be best if I actually spelled out what physicalists believe first of all. So I've swapped the order of subjects here. So we started that dualism, now we've made it to physicalism. Physicalism is the belief that we are composed of physical stuff. And while we as persons might amount to more than just mere physical stuff, in the sense that maybe we are, in some synergistic sense, more than the sum total of all our parts, all those parts, according to physicalism, are physical parts. There are no substances that make us up or contribute to our being that are non-physical substances. Physicalism is sometimes also called materialism, and for that reason I want to make a very important distinction right at the beginning. We're talking about philosophical anthropology, not metaphysics. 
Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that deals with the nature of existence. And some people are materialists when it comes to metaphysics in the sense that they believe that only material things can exist. Now, I don't believe that for a second. I'm a Christian. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with materialism as a philosophical anthropology, a view on what we ourselves as human beings are made of. It's unfortunate, I suppose, that there exists this overlap of terminology, but coincidences do happen. I wanted to at least make it clear that there is this overlap so you don't get confused about me. If I occasionally say, I'm a materialist, you think, wait a minute, he doesn't believe in God. No, that's not what I'm saying. So let's get started. Let me preface all that I'm about to say with a disclaimer, not a cop-out, a disclaimer. Carefully spelled out theories of mind, theories explained in a way that really convey all the nuts and bolts of the theory and in a way that addresses all the main objections, is really hard and very complicated. This is all the more so, I dare say, and yes, you may find this a little biased and perhaps a little unkind to dualism, but I think it's warranted. It's all the more so when the theories that I'm going to be dealing with, namely physicalist ones, are evidence-based theories, and they actually attempt to address the problems that philosophy of mind faces instead of inserting mysterious ghosts with unknown properties into the gaps, ghosts that can offer an explanation that we don't need to divulge. We don't need to explain how it works, we just need to know that there are these ghosts there that make it work. Physicalism is complex and messy stuff, so I don't pretend that this is what I'm going to do, namely offer a full account that gives a decent explanation of how we could respond to all the objections. I won't be doing that. I can't do that. While I have a keen interest in philosophy of mind, largely for theological reasons, actually, I don't pretend that this is where my expertise lies. So I'm not going to be exhaustive or in-depth. So let me start by making a few comments about a position called epiphenomenalism. Because partly because it's interesting in its own right, but also partly because it will introduce a, a really important issue in philosophy of mind that I haven't said much about, but which I need to say something about, and an issue about which physicalist theories of mind have plenty to say. That issue that epiphenomenalism forces us to look at is the issue of what is called mental causation. How do mental events, how do thoughts translate into behavior? How do mental events or states like wills, desires, choices, etc. make the physical meat that is our body do stuff? The answer provided by epiphenomenalism is simple. Thoughts don't cause actions. Period. Thoughts, or mental events, are effects. They are the, the products of a process. They are not causes. Epiphenomenalism really took age sorry really took hold in an age where dualism was still the norm among scientists and in which religious unbelief was gaining more ground so it was assumed by the religious and the non-religious alike that mental events just were not and could not be physical events i i don't want to place too much blame at their feet for this neuroscience as we know it simply did not exist they couldn't appeal to it, they couldn't explore it or anything like that. Since, epiphenomenalists reasoned, 
physical events in the body need physical causes. And since mental events are not physical events, they are events in the mind, it follows that mental events do not cause physical events in the body. The position has been most memorably set out by Thomas Huxley, who told the world that consciousness is epiphenomenal just, quote, as the steam whistle which accompanies the work of a locomotive engine is without influence upon its machinery, end quote. So you imagine the mind is like the noise being let off by a steam engine. Steam doesn't affect what goes on in the engine. It's just the result of the process. The brain causes actions, according to epiphenomenalism, via a fairly mechanistic and unconscious physical process, and it also produces thoughts. Huxley is a bit more materialistic than some of the epiphenomenalists that I would have in mind. But the thoughts, being mental and not physical, do not cause the actions. Now, epiphenomenalism seems like a pretty strange view to many. I think it's very strange myself, although I'm not really going to say a whole lot about it. I introduced the view just to draw attention to the issue of mental causation. One rather obvious way that you can just avoid epiphenomenalism is by saying, well, yeah, I, I reject dualism. I embrace physicalism. True, you might say. It is either very difficult or maybe it's impossible to see how a non-physical mental event can cause a physical event in the body, can cause physical behavior. But if mental events are in some sense physical after all, then the problem is, in principle, solvable. I said in an earlier episode that I don't think this argument against dualism is conclusive. Not at all. It's not really an argument against dualism at all. It may end up being just another argument from ignorance, if we use it that way. Much like the arguments that dualists are so fond of using against physicalism, arguments that I surveyed in parts one and two of this series. But... This issue of, of mental causation does suggest a way in which physicalist theories of mind have an initial advantage over dualist theories, because while any explanation of how a non-physical event could cause a physical event might be shrouded in mystery, and in principle impossible to explain, because we don't know the properties of a non-physical substance, uh, how physical brain events might be part of a causal chain that leads to physical actions looks like something that actually would have an accessible, even if very complicated, explanation. So physicalism does have the initial advantage of explanatory power when it comes to mental causation, when it comes to asking how mental events could cause us to do things. Epiphenomenalism is, for some at least, a way of reasoning from dualism to the claim that our thoughts are not responsible for our actions which really amounts to a lack of free will with respect to our actions. What's interesting, however, is that dualists want a piece of this cake as well. As I discussed earlier in this series, some dualists claim that physicalism results in the view that thoughts, as physical events, are subject to the deterministic laws of nature, and so they're incapable of responsible choice-making. They're just being bumped along by everything else in the universe like, like a leaf in a river. It's a tempting target, it seems, to try and show that your opponents are undermining free will and responsibility. Dualists have done it. Physicalists have done it. Partly because I think that epiphenomenalism undermines the notion of moral responsibility, I don't think that it's a particularly appealing option for Christians. Physicalist models of human nature are, to some extent, 
ways of providing alternatives to epiphenomenalism, but they also have some work cut out for them in offering a possible account of free will. The first physicalist model that I'm going to look at today has a few things to say about the relationship between thoughts and actions and how the idea of freedom fares in all of this. But of course, these models are not all about that, and they do do speak more broadly about human nature. But this first model that I'm going to look at is called non-reductive physicalism. Non-reductive physicalism. Well, to understand why this view might be called non-reductive, it's best to have a basic idea of what it would mean to talk about reductive physicalism. So I'm actually, I'm going to talk about reductionism first before I talk about non-reductionism, or non-reductivism, or however you wish to, to phrase it. Reductionism is a way of thinking about the relationship between a whole thing and the parts of that thing. According to reductive physicalism, a mental state can simply be reduced to a physical brain state. What that means is once any discussion of thoughts, feelings, desires and decisions is distilled down to the fundamental facts, we would actually be talking about brain chemistry and neurophysiology and nothing else. If reductionism is true, then if you take two people who have identical brain states, so their brains are physically in exactly the same state, if you were to examine them, you'd kill them, but let's overlook that. Let's say that we just knew that their brains were in exactly the same physical state. Then, according to reductionism, they must be thinking exactly the same thoughts. They must have exactly the same mental state. Because, where was I? Because the thoughts just are the brain states, according to reductivism. They are the same thing once you boil down your language into the basics. As Francis Crick infamously put it, he said, You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. End quote. So that's reductive physicalism or just reductionism. Call it what you will. As Warren Brown correctly notes, out of some concern, he notes, and I quote, the problem with physicalism, he is a physicalist, by the way, he says, the problem with physicalism is that it can be mistaken to imply reductionism, the position that humans are nothing but a bag of indirecting molecules, end quote. Now, as the quote from Francis Crick indicates, he's just one example, there is no shortage of physicalists who are reductionists, Daniel Dennett, David Lewis are a couple of very prominent examples in different fields. Daniel Dennett in biology, David Lewis in philosophy. Increasingly, however, philosophers of mind no longer believe that physicalism requires reductionism. Although she wasn't writing in support of non-reductive physicalism at the time, Patricia Churchland gives a decent explanation of why some people, she refers to functionalists here, why some people might reject the claim that mind states are identical to neurochemical brain states. She says, and I quote, As functionalists see it, for a reductive strategy to succeed, a type of mental state must be identical to a type of physical state, but, they argue, the identities are not forthcoming. The reason is that one and the same cognitive organization might be realized or embodied in various ways in various stuffs, which entails that there cannot be one-to-one -one relations between functional types and structural types. 
As is often the case when philosophers speak, I will offer a translation. This is, this is the point she's making here. If a state of consciousness, a mind state, a brain state, no, not a brain state, a mind state, is identical with and is reducible to a specific physical brain state, if those two things are identical, then whenever a given mind state is present, that brain state is present as well, because they are the same thing. What's perfectly plausible, however, Churchland notes, is that the same mind can be reproduced, that is, the same mind state can be reproduced with different brain states, just as the same program on a computer could be run on two physically different computers, but the output would be the same. She uses the helpful example of an alien race, not carbon-based like us, but silicon-based. They are able to have mind states that are, let's say, just like ours. The coincidence can easily be imagined that one of them briefly has a mind state that is identical with a mind state that I briefly had yesterday. Yet their physical brain would obviously not be identical to the physical brain state that I had. It's not even made of quite the same stuff, so it can't be the same. This shows that one kind of reductionism is false, but it's not really enough. It shows that one mind state, one mental state of affairs, could exist with a number of different possible brain states, but it does not show, and this is where people get uncomfortable, well, some people get uncomfortable with physicalism, it doesn't show that one brain state could result in a variety of different possible mind states. It still sounds deterministic and reductionistic. Now, the person who, through her writings, introduced me to the term non-reductive physicalism, a um, scholar by the name of Dr. Nancy Murphy, uses the term neurobiological reductionism to refer to the reductive view that I have in mind, both because it helpfully captures the heart of the idea and also to set up the contrast between that view and her own non-reductive view. The term causal reductionism is another relevant one here. Now, the reductive view that I've just described supposes that the content of our higher-level functions, things like thinking, wishing, reflecting, and so forth, functions of the mind as a whole, are solely caused by the physical facts at the lower level, the state of our neurons, brain chemistry, and so forth. That's causal reductionism. That's what that term means. Dr. Murphy explained, she said, Causal reductionism presupposes the notion of the hierarchy of complex systems, such that the higher-level systems are composed of lower-level parts. Causal reductionism, then, is the thesis that all causation is bottom-up, from the part to the whole. Downward causation is so-called because it represents the claim that the whole has reciprocal effects or constraints on its parts. So instead of the little components of the whole being the things that cause the effects that occur at the higher level, she's saying that there is a, a notion of downward causation where the whole mind can conspire to influence what goes on at the lower level. Causal reductionism has consequences. But just saying that we don't hold to this type of reductionism doesn't explain it away. It just indicates that we're not willing to accept it. Being a physicalist who holds non-reductivist views is surely just to be a physicalist who refuses to embrace the consequences of physicalism, some might say. 
However, I dare say that this assessment can no longer be seriously held. Dr. Murphy recalls, she says, I call my position non-reductive physicalism, but when I began using this term 10 or so years ago, the non-reductive part, I realized, was just a placeholder. I had no adequate answer to the question, if humans are purely physical, then how can it fail to be the case that all of their thoughts and behavior are merely the product of the laws of neurobiology? But doesn't reductionism have to be false? Otherwise, we're not holding our positions for reasons. We are determined to do so. She means biologically determined to do so. And in fact, we can't make sense of a meeting such as the one at which this paper was presented. We must have just been taking turns making noises at one another. But, Dr. Murphy says, I believe that I now have the resources to provide an answer to the reductionists. End quote. Bear in mind, a full answer and explanation is never going to be simple. You've heard the saying, this isn't rocket science. Well, this is even worse. It's more complicated than that. It's neuroscience and philosophy of mind. In the 2007 book, actually a collaboration between Nancy Murphy and Warren Brown, who I mentioned earlier, the book is called Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? It's a book that I've recently ordered and I look forward to reading through it when I get the time. That explanation is given of how we can now talk about non-reductive physicalism with respect to how the brain works. But it takes up over 300 pages to get someone a good idea of, of this concept and, and all the nuances of it. So what anything I say here will be brief by comparison. But this is where causal reductionism is rejected and another possibility, the one I, I named earlier, downward causation, is introduced. The idea of downward causation in natural systems was first mentioned in the 70s, but it didn't get much attention after that until the 90s, in the 1990s. In brief, the idea of downward causation is comprehensible once explained, and there are some examples of natural systems that exhibit causation from the whole to the parts, i.e. downward causation. And we can use these as analogies for how downward causation could work for the relationship between the mind and the brain. Murphy draws on the work of Robert Van Gulik, and, he's, and she summarizes him like this. I quote, The reductionist's claim is that the causal roles associated with special science classifications are entirely derivative from the causal roles of the underlying physical constituents. Van Gulik argues that even though the events and objects picked out by the special sciences are composites of physical constituents, the causal powers of such an object are not determined solely by the physical properties of its constituents and the laws of physics. They are also determined by the organization of those constituents within the composite. And it's just such a pattern of organization that... Sorry, just such patterns of organization that are picked out by the predicates of the special sciences. These patterns have downward causal efficacy in that they can affect which causal powers of their constituents are activated. A given physical constituent may have many causal powers, but only some subsets of them will be active in a given situation. The larger context, i.e. the pattern of which it is a part, may affect which of its causal powers get activated. Thus, the whole is not any simple function of its parts. 
since the whole at least partially determines what contributions are made by its parts. She was quoting from Van Gulik there. She goes on, Such patterns or entities are stable features of the world, often in spite of variations or exchanges in their underlying physical constituents. Many such patterns are self-sustaining or self-reproducing in the face of perturbing physical forces that might degrade or destroy them, e.g. DNA patterns. Finally, the selective activation of the causal powers of such a pattern's parts may in many cases contribute to the maintenance and preservation of the pattern itself. Taken together, he says, she's referring to Van Gulik, these points illustrate that higher-order patterns can have a degree of independence from their underlying physical realizations and can exert what might be called downward causal influences without requiring any objectionable form of emergentism by which higher-order properties would alter the underlying laws of physics. Higher-order properties act by the selective activation of physical powers and not by their alteration. End quote. It was quite a mouthful and quite complicated, but if you followed it, Hopefully you see the point being made. The next significant development in the idea of downward causation came, says Dr. Murphy, from Dr. Alicia Huerero. I hope I'm saying that right. She describes the role of a system as a whole in determining the behavior of its parts, and she draws on the theory of dynamical self-organizing systems to explain how. I have to admit that I am quite out of my depth in that field. It's, it's not something I have ever invested time studying, so I am entirely at the mercy of the experts here. Huerero describes the way in which complex and dynamic systems can be self-organizing in a way whereby their organization, and I quote, functions as an internal selection process established by the system itself, operating top-down to preserve and enhance itself, end quote. The system as a whole constrains the behavior of the component processes. The important changes in our understanding of causation is such that Alwyn Scott, a man who specializes in nonlinear mathematics, says that a paradigm shift in science has been taking place over the last few decades, a paradigm shift amounting to a new conception of the very nature of causality. The idea of downward causation now enjoys widespread support, meaning that in principle there's nothing obviously wrong with thinking of a physical thing whose mental acts are not wholly determined by the neurochemical processes that go on in the brain. In practice, the actual systems involved, the immensely complex human brain and also the highly complex social environment in which we live, are so complex that offering an account of how downward causation plays is beyond us. Not just me, it's beyond us. Uh, I don't think anyone's attempted to be quite so ambitious as, as to do that. All we need to know is that it's the kind of thing that can happen, and there are simpler examples of it happening that we can use. Murphy, like Van Gulik, uses the example of an ant colony in details that I won't go into here, but I have provided a link to her article in the notes for this episode at my site. In fact, I'll provide a, a reading list there for anyone who really wants to go into this further. But for, for you and for me, I guess, as, as people who are not specialists, in philosophy of science, the thing to know is just that the idea of downward causation is now an acceptable one, lending great strength to the view that physicalism can be non-reductive. So appealing to the assumption that physicalism just has to be reductionism 
is now an appeal to what I take to be a defunct position, or at very least, it's not one you can bank on people accepting as they might once have. The second, and this isn't really a distinct model, it's just a different view of mine, but it's the second issue that I want to bring up, and that is another kind of emergentism. Recall, although it was a while ago now, that in part two of In Search of the Soul, I outlined the view called emergent dualism, as proposed by William Hasker. If you don't recall it, it might pay to do a refresher on that episode at some stage. One general kind of argument for emergent dualism was that physicalism lacks the resources required for things like free will or a consciousness that can have unity. And so we need to propose, so emergent dualists say, we need to propose that from the physical body something else, something other than the physical body, is emergent, a mind that is capable of supporting these things, a mind with causal powers that do not arise from the physical brain upon which it is emergent. One of the ways in which I responded to this type of argument is by saying that, actually, emergent dualism is helping itself to more than it is entitled to, if it is defended that way. If a mind is emergent upon a physical organism, really emergent and not just verbal, we say that it's emergent, but we think of it as independent, like in, in Cartesian dualism. If it's really emergent on a physical organism, then where does it get its causal powers from? Remember William Hasker's examples of gravitational fields around black holes or magnetic fields around magnets? It's obvious where the causal powers of those fields come from. The fields just are the influence of the material objects themselves. The causal powers that we call those fields come from the material objects. Ditto for emergent dualism. I'm not faulting the idea of emergence. I've got no problem with it. Um, I'm not even faulting the idea that some sort of emergence might support a robust account of free will and thought. But if we absolutely deny that a material thing can have this sort of freedom, then positing emergent dualism isn't going to provide it either. Saving emergentism by allowing that physical things might have more causal powers, thereby enabling them to pass these things on to the emergent mind, that makes emergent dualism redundant, because the emergent mind is no longer required to explain away those causal powers. Other philosophers have noticed this. When reflecting on William Hasker's emergent dualism, Nancy Murphy expresses some bewilderment at just why he insists on seeing physicalism as the opposition. She actually sees emergentists and physicalists largely as allies, and so do I for that matter. In fact, she goes as far as to say, and I agree with her, that you can quite fairly refer to non-reductive physicalism as emergent monism. And since that's the first time I've used that term, I should tell you that monism just means that it's the, it's the belief that there is one substance, mono, rather than two substance, not dualism. So emergent monism, or emergent physicalism even. She agrees with Hasker's observation that emergence is basically the polar opposite of reductionism. In reductionism, remember, a thing and its capacities can be reduced to its lower constituent parts and their capacities. In emergentism, you've got the opposite happening. Constituents part, constituent parts can give rise to something higher than the sum of all of them. Given this understanding of those two basic ideas, then non-reductive physicalism is what Murphy calls 
causal emergentism. True, positing the emergence of causal powers is, as Hasker says, an extremely controversial metaphysical claim. But that should be no barrier for him, because he embraces an even more controversial metaphysical claim, even by his own admission, namely the emergence of a person. Emergent physicalism should be enough, and going the extra step of affirming emergent dualism is not only less plausible, but simply unnecessary. What a number of physicalists, as well as those who identify as non-reductive physicalists, what a number of physicalists talk about is not substance dualism, but property dualism and emergentism, as thoroughly physicalist conceptions of human beings. In light of the observations that I've just made, it's not surprising that Timothy O'Connor and Jonathan Jacobs are able to, without any kind of logical wincing or awkwardness, have an in-depth article published explaining their physicalist views of human nature, wherein, quote, persons are material substances, end quote, all the while referring to their position, in fact, this is the name of the article, as emergent individuals. I mean, Haskett called his position, his book, The Emergent Self, but he insisted on dualism. If emergentism helpfully avoids reductionism, then emergentism is, ev- is available to physicalists to do just that. They don't need to become dualists in order to use the idea of emergentism. Moving on to the next sort of chunk that I want to talk about, and that is, and th- again, this isn't necessarily an alternative to the positions that I've just described. In fact, I think they overlap. But I want to say a few things about what's called a constitution view of human beings. Kevin Corcoran, who is the professor of philosophy at Calvin College, offers what he calls a constitution view of human persons, and he's not the only one to believe in it. Here we'll move noticeably away from considerations offered by neuroscience and towards more of an abstract philosophical take on personhood. In a constitution view, physicalism is affirmed and substance dualism in all of its forms is denied, but human persons are not identical with the collection of physical particles that make up the human body. As Dr. Corcoran put it, and I quote, I am going to tell you why I believe that I am a physical thing, even if the physical thing I am is not, perhaps surprisingly, the biological body that constitutes me, end quote. Now this is where you might find the constitution view a little bit weird initially. Yes, we are physical beings, but we're not physical bodies. This is the way I reacted when I first saw that before I read the whole piece. How could that, how could, that doesn't even make sense. If we're not immaterial souls and we are physical, then surely there's only one candidate for what we are, a body, right? No, not so, says Corcoran. He introduces the idea of, or he introduces the relationship of constitution to explain why not. Relationships of constitution are actually pretty common things, Corcoran explains, where a thing is constituted by something, but not identical with it, because it's possible for the two things to have different properties. We can ask a couple of simple questions to determine whether or not two things, X and Y, really are identical, he says. And I quote, ask yourself, are there any properties that the one has but the other lacks? If so, then X and Y are not identical. Are there any changes that X could undergo without ceasing to exist, but which Y could not undergo without ceasing to exist? 
If so, then X and Y are numerically distinct things. End quote. Distinct, of course, just means they aren't identical. Here's an example like the one that Kevin uses. Now, when you're a PhD grant talking about another PhD grant, first names are okay, so I'm told. Think about a bronze statue. Now, what constitutes that statue? Put another way, what are the constituents of that statue? Well, there's really only one thing, unless we go into the molecules and then the atoms, but there's a big piece of bronze. That's what constitutes the statue, right? Is the statue identical to the piece of bronze that constitutes it? You might think so initially, but have another look. Let's apply one of the questions that Corcoran gave us. Are there any changes that the piece of copper, sorry, piece of bronze can undergo without ceasing to exist, but which the statue could not undergo without ceasing to exist? Well, actually there are. We could take that big piece of bronze, melt it down and roll it flat into a sheet. Is the piece of bronze still there? Well, it certainly is. It's a different shape, but it's still there. Is the statue still there? No, the statue no longer exists. Therefore, the piece of bronze, Corcoran explains, is not identical with the statue. You see how that works? The same holds for human persons. Human beings are made up of the parts that make up a living, functioning human body. But if you do something to the body so that it stops living, take your pick, you can poison it, drown it, throw it off a cliff, throw it under a steamroller or whatever, the body will go on existing, but we will not. Just like the statue. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? However, when I first saw this explained, I was a bit disappointed. I thought to myself, okay, sure. Technically, even if a person is physical, they can be thought of as not identical with their body. But how does this really get away from any of the objections that someone might want to raise against physicalism? After all, a person is still made of the physical components of a body, and if that's what gives rise to the objections against physicalism, in general, those objections will still apply. But maybe that disappointment only arose because I was hoping for something that I then discovered that Dr. Corcoran wasn't really trying to offer. He adds in a footnote, I quote, It should be pointed out that the constitution view of persons is a metaphysical view of the relationship between a person and his or her body. It's not a theory of the mind and the relationship between mental events and physical events in the brain. As I understand the view, it is neutral with respect to so-called reductive and non-reductive theories of mind. End quote. Okay, so really this isn't a philosophy of mind because it makes no attempts to address the mind-body problem. What it is, is a much more general view of persons. In fact, it's a view of objects in general. What's being said here is, and I quote, I'm not a body, but I'm constituted by one. And if you think that this causes problems for a theory of, well, actually, this is not really a quote. This is me making it up. But this is what he could have said as a summary. I'm not a body, but I'm constituted by one. If you think that causes a problem for a theory of mind, then let's go and look at physicalist theories of mind to address your challenges. He even suggests that Nancy Murphy could supplement, in fact, should supplement her non-reductive physicalism with his constitutive view of human persons, showing that he doesn't think that they are exclusive. He doesn't think that they're alternatives. He thinks they're quite compatible. What this made me wonder then was that was this. 
What advantage is it really to think of us as constituted by a human body rather than identical with one? It offers nothing to the concept of the mind, and it appears to be just a distinction that makes no difference. So why make it? Why draw this distinction? Well, there's actually a good reason. If we say that a person is identical to a certain collection of physical parts, then when those parts are replaced, the person has been replaced and no longer exists. Let me use an illustration that's quite common in, in philosophy of mind. Imagine a sailing ship made up of wooden planks and beams. That ship is the HMS Pelican. Then imagine that every day one of those planks is removed and replaced with a new one. Now after a couple of years, every wooden piece, every piece of wood has been replaced. Is it the same ship? Is it still the HMS Pelican? The answer is yes, and I think just about any observer would say, of course it's the same ship. Now, what does that intuition suggest to us? Think about that, because we couldn't say this. We couldn't say, yes, it's the same ship, if the HMS Pelican was identical with a particular set of planks and beams. However, if we introduce the idea of a constitution relationship, then things become a bit more sensible, I think. The ship is, at any given time, constituted by a particular set of planks and beams rather than identical with them. Because it's not identical with them, the constituent parts may change over time, but the identity of the thing constituted, namely the HMS Pelican, remains the same. So thinking of the identity of objects, including persons, in general in terms of constitution, does make identity over time, in spite of physical change, plausible. We, we can make sense of it if we think about constitution. Dr. Corcoran there I go, calling him doctor again, draws on this idea using the idea of constitution to make sense of the fact that a human body persists over time. He uses the analogy of a storm, which I think is quite creative. The human body is like a tornado, constantly discarding old material and picking up new material as, as it persists, but it still remains the same tornado. I think that this is an adequate introductory account of the constitution view. In what I've covered here, there's nothing about the constitution view that I object to. I think it's sensible. I think it makes no far-out claims. It's, it's probably the easiest thing to understand that I've said so far today. I do think, however, that Corcoran himself says more than he needs to, and he actually holds a version of the constitution view that he doesn't have to hold to. As I've described the constitution view, it speaks only about what a person is identical with versus what they are constituted by. However, Corcoran also maintains that a person is essentially psychological. He says that a person is essentially physical and essentially psychological. So they've got to have a physical existence and they've got to have a psychological existence in order to exist. So if you don't have a psychological life, there is no you. There's not even an undeveloped or dysfunctional you. You don't exist at all. Consequently, if you destroy a fetus, an unborn child, had a, you know, or an embryo, or an early fetus, you aren't killing anyone. Bear in mind at this point that if one of most versions of dualism is true, then abortion doesn't kill anyone either, since abortion cannot kill an immortal soul, but I'm not going to go down that path. I think this view of abortion is false. 
And I just don't see any compelling reason to insist that we are necessarily psychological things at every stage of our existence. I think that our capacities are limited by the things that constitute us. So the less developed we are in the womb, the less we are capable of, including forming ideas, for example. We can't do as many things. But it is still us that we are talking about. So I think that the insistence on psychological experiences as a necessary condition of one's existence is an idiosyncrasy of Corcoran's personal view and definitely not a requirement for a constitution view. I mean, you imagine going into a coma where, I don't know, for five seconds you're clinically dead and then you come out of that state and then eventually you come out of the coma. It implies that you you didn't exist for five seconds, which is just kind of crazy. They can't revive you if you're not even there. So I don't think Corcoran really needed to hold that view. So what have I covered? Well, roughly this. I recapped the previous episodes where I outlined Cartesian or Platonic dualism and some objections to that, along with emergent dualism as well. Then I noted that mental causation and also the idea of free will is of major concern to those formulating physicalist theories of mind. Epiphenomenalism, the view that thoughts do not cause actions, was a view largely associated with dualism, but not exclusively. But the idea that thoughts and actions are causally determined and not free at all is something that physicalist theories seriously grapple with. Causal reductionism is the view that basically sells the farm of free will. Yes, it says our thoughts are reducible to the behavior of our brain activity, sorry, our brain chemistry, and that is that. Deal with it. Non-reductive physicalism, while complex, offers a way of thinking about the relationship between the lower level components of our neural systems and the system as a whole that allows for top-down causation and throws open again the genuine possibility of freedom and responsibility alongside a physicalist view of human beings. This in turn draws our attention to the idea of emergence again, but not emergent dualism. While Bill Hasker, he's a PhD and I'm a PhD, I get to call him Bill. While Bill Hasker offers up the model of emergent dualism, what we're seeing is that this might be quite unnecessary. And maybe we can think of physical systems as having emergent properties that will do the job of an emergent dualist mind perfectly well. Let me just add in closing a general observation that we're going to have to be realistic about free will if we are physicalists. Something that might trouble people, but which is firstly very plausible in light of scientific considerations, and secondly is the kind of thing that comes with the territory of being concerned with truth rather than, pardon me, concerned about sentimental satisfaction. If we learn that physical causes have a considerable degree of influence on the thoughts that we think and choices we make, then so be it. Live with it. Lastly, I looked at the possibility of seeing the relationship between human beings as their bodies as one of constitution, rather than seeing those two things as identical. Now that's a really useful conceptualization for the purpose of making sense of objects, animals and people retaining their identity over time in spite of physical change and even physical replacement. Now, I hope that you will appreciate that everything in today's episode, I keep saying this, but I want you to realize everything I've said today has been incredibly introductory and therefore very summary in nature. And I'm going to put a suggested reading list, if this is a subject that interests you, in the blog so you can look into it further yourself. Now, 
there's one great big gap in what I've presented. Everything that I've said is about how physicalism poses no problem in terms of you being a free, morally responsible agent in the most relevant sense of those terms. In other words, I've, and I, incidentally, I haven't really been speaking about this much, but I think that basically satisfies the criteria of us being a spiritual creature in the, in the relevant sense of those terms. But from a Christian point of view, philosophy of mind and talk of what constitutes a person has consequences of real importance when it comes to the question of life after death. Having presented the basic options that a Christian has, namely the various kinds of dualism along with models of physicalism, having presented those options to you, in the next installments in, in these series, I'll be turning to the important subject of life after death. A number of Christians who are dualists have said that physicalism cannot provide a satisfactory account of life after death in a way that preserves personal identity, so that the person who lives in the future is the same person as the one who died in the past. I think that's actually the most serious objection to physicalism, physicalism from a Christian point of view. So I will be addressing that next time. Then after that, I'll be moving away from philosophy and closer to biblical studies and asking what, if anything, the Bible has to say about human nature, the body, the soul, and so forth. So that's that for now on philosophy of mind. It's been a while since we've done this, so let's have another This Week in History. December 6th, AD 345, St. Nicholas dies. St. Nicholas, yes, old St. Nick. What better way to celebrate the Christmas season with your kids than to tell them that this is the time of the year when we remember the death of Santa. I bet you didn't see that coming. (laughs) December 7th, 345, the very day after St. Nicholas died, St. Ambrose was ordained as a bishop. It was through the preaching of St. Ambrose that Augustine was converted to the Christian faith. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese Air Force attacked American forces at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, effectively dragging America into World War II. December 7th, 1965, Pope Paul VI reorganized the Holy Office, which had previously been known as the Inquisition, and deciding that the Church still has a use for it, uh-oh. <laughs> he renamed it the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. December 8, 1941, because of the events of December 7, 1941, the U.S. Congress declared war on Japan. December 8, 1954, 18, sorry, 1854, Pope Pius IX declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, formally introducing into Catholic theology the doctrine that Mary, the mother of Jesus, unlike all other human beings, was conceived and born without the sinful nature that the rest of us bear and without original sin. December 8, 1980, former Beatles member John Lennon was shot dead by a deranged fan. December 9, 1608, the English poet John Milton was born in London. He was best known for his poetic epic Paradise Lost. He also wrote a book on Christian doctrine, a plan for Christian education, and various writings in political philosophy, including an important defense of freedom of speech. December 9th, 1843, the very first Christmas cards, actually more like postcards, are created, and then they are sold for a shilling each by Felix Summerlee's Treasure House in Bond Street, London. The original print run was, I believe, 1,000 cards. 
December 9, 1941, siding with Allied forces, China declared war on Japan, Germany, and Italy. December 10, 1520, German reformer Martin Luther publicly burns Pope Leo X's bull, Exerge Domine, which had demanded that Luther recant his so-called heresies, including justification by faith alone. What a load of papal bull. December 10th in 1901, their very first ever Nobel Prizes were awarded in Stockholm, Sweden. Unlike today, in 1901, all recipients of Nobel Prizes, including the Peace Prize, had to have earned them before receiving them. Can you get them today without earning them? Yes, we can! Yes, we can! Yes, we can! You sure can. December 11th, 1640, English Puritans introduced a petition with 15,000 signatures to Parliament, seeking to abolish the church episcopacy, that is, the governance of the church by the bishops, quote, with all of its dependencies, roots, and branches, end quote. Now, you might find it strange that a church-related demand be brought to Parliament. Bear in mind, this is the Anglican Church, and there was no separation of church and state. The House of Commons accepted what has become known as the Roots and Branch Petition, but the House of Lords, many of whom were themselves bishops, rejected it. The gravy train was just too good, and the Episcopal organization of the Church of England remained. December 12th, 1915, only one important thing happened on December 12th in history, and it is this, Frank Sinatra was born. As it is the season, Merry Christmas. Not Happy Holidays, not Happy festive season, Merry Christmas. Not happy Festivus, if you're a Seinfeld fan, Merry Christmas. Because that's what it is, it's Christmas. It's good to be back. That's all for now, but do join me again next time. Until then, this is Glenn Peoples, signing off another riveting episode of... 